So welcome everyone. My name is Deacon Harrison Garlick and I serve as the Chancellor in Legal Counsel for the Diocese of Tulsa. I am uh, honored to be a guest host today for the Catholic Man Show and we are down here in the archives of the Chancery of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Tulsa. Today as a guest we have uh, Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones. Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones is the Director of the Catholic Studies at Franciscan University and is a founding editor of the website and journal New Polity. He is the author of Before Church and State, A Study of the Social Order in the Sacramental Kingdom of St. Louis IX, and most recently of The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. Andrew's work focuses on a reevaluation of our current social predicament through an authentic Catholic vision of reality. Andrew was raised in Washington State and attended Hillsdale College, earning degrees in history and economics and completing a Ph.D. in medieval church history from St. Louis University. He lives in Steubenville, Ohio, with his wife Sarah and their nine children. Mm-hmm. So welcome. We're Thank very you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you are the author of Before Church and State, mm-hmm. which I think is a phenomenal text. Thank you. Um, I think it's how I kind of found out about your work, as I heard about this text. I think the title is actually one of the main selling points, right? I actually think the title is fantastic because I think the title before church and state uh, immediately starts to stretch the imagination of us as moderns of, well, wait, what, what does that mean? So maybe right. as an introduction to the text, could you tell us about the title and what this text is? Sure, sure. So, so what it's doing, what I'm trying to do there is just point out the, the historicity or the, the, the historical nature of those categories church and state, the way we use them. All right. So we use, we use church and state. How do we do it? We, I, I, I think if we were going to summarize it very briefly, it would be the church is where there's like religious stuff and the state is where there's not religious stuff right. <laughs> or something like that. And, um, and, and so we have those, those words and, and they, and they, they map onto a certain social structure that we live in. And, um, and we often mistakenly, I think, uh, sort of absolutize those categories or essentialize them, think that those are timeless and they're not. They're actually they're actually a product of history. There's a time there's a time before church and state existed, and and I don't mean by that a time when they were mixed up or a time when the church was in charge of the state. Or that's not what I mean. I mean it literally. Like there was a time before those categories in the way we understand them existed. So most right. of us are uh, you know Americans. So help me understand because when I think of church and state, uh, the next word that I think of is separation. Right, of right. course. So we, yeah, we got, we got yeah. So that's what we're we're evoking all of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, that, <laughs> so before church and state, it does. It kind of it, it raises this question of like, wait, what does that mean? So if you're going to say before church and state, um, you know, the subtitle here is a study of the social order in the sacramental kingdom of Saint Louis the Ninth. So how does how does a sacramental kingdom serve as a window into before church and state? Sure. Yeah. So so the separation of church and state. So the way in which we normally talk about that, or I think the narrative we normally tell, is something like there was a time when church and state were um, not separated, when they were they were united, and the way and, and united both though as church and state. So this sort of like um, artificial partnership, and we tend to think of that the way we tell our story is that that was sort of a corruption, right? Mm-hmm. That the church. Often we'll say like the church was corrupt, the church was dominating the state, or the state dominated the church. Either way, we're looking at that as something that is was bad. And so then the separation of church and state is a sort of sorting of the world into its proper places, right? But the problem with that, 
historically is that that's actually not what happens. Um, what actually happens is is the the separation of church and state is the creation of the categories church and state. All right, so they don't exist until we separate them. So separating them is the creation of them. Yeah, I think there's... So, so. <laughs> yeah, that's no, fascinating. So I think, because I think, the, yeah, there's this uh, myth that we have, and we can dig into more of this, right, that there was this this dark ages, mm-hmm. right, that, which includes, for most people, the entire medieval period, right? Yeah. Even today, right? So we see something terrible in the news, and it's like, oh, it's medieval. Right. Yeah, we yeah. Use it, we use I know, I know, I know. Yeah, even conservatives do that, right? Yeah, we, we use this as a, as a pejorative. And so... Um, you know, and the modernity came and saved us from these religious wars and violence and everything. That's right, and, yeah. So you're looking at King Louis IX. This is in the 1200s? Yes. Correct? So sketch out a little bit then, what does his kingdom look like? Like, what, how, is it, how okay. is it unique? Sure. So, so um, <clears throat> the way I can begin, which is perhaps the most provocative, is to say there wasn't a state. <laughs> I, like I like that. Okay, so... so so, and people go, what? Was it anarchist or something? And it's like, well, no, 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 no. There's most certainly order. There's most certainly hierarchy. There's most certainly authority. But what there isn't is the idea of some sort of sovereign lawmaking authority that rules from the center and orders the, the social whole. All right, so, so right from the beginning, we have a, a distinction, a, a massive distinction on the vocation or the role of someone like a king. So his role is to maintain the peace. But not he's not the, or, the the source of peace. So what's the source of peace? The source of social peace is the gospel, is grace, is is uh, the preaching of the truth, the living of charity. All right. So the the Christian life itself is an ordering, uh, a proper ordering of, of of man in society in the world. Right. And so where people are living authentic Christian lives, there's no call for or no need for extrinsic. Um, ordering or or coercive authority, right? And so they actually understand this to be the case. So the way people live at peace, they just call it the peace, is a um, is in a sense the law. So that can be that varies dramatically throughout the kingdom. So different villages, different communities are living the peace in their own way. But what happens, of course, because because this, even though we're Christians, even though they're Christians, it's not heaven on earth. There's sin, there's conflict, there's problems. And so where a conflict erupts, that then becomes the problem. Okay, so there's a fight going on in this village, in this place. Now we need to solve this. Now here's where the king comes in. So the king comes in as a judge to determine what went wrong, how was the peace broken, and then to try to restore the peace. But the first thing he has to do is figure out what constituted the peace where he came, where he came. So how do you guys normally live here in this village? What is the way in which you coexist peacefully? So he's not showing up and pulling out some sort of big legal code book and saying, here's the law of the kingdom and you guys are violations here or here. That's not the way it works. Right? He doesn't even know what the law is until he shows up. He has to find out the way they live. And then he can determine who's the violent one, who's the victim, who's the aggressor, and then set things right. So from the very beginning, you can see why I can say there's not a state, right? There's no central administrative bureaucratic entity that somehow monopolizes social order. Because when we think of state today, we usually think of the nation state, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the sovereign state central authority like we have like the federal government right. that dictates everything and it trickles down from there. Right. But I, with a monopolization on violence, 
right? So the only legitimate coercion is coercion that the state, you know, uh, deploys. Any other coercion is crime. But I I need a little bit of help because, you know, what modernity has told me is it saved us generally through like a democratic process from the sovereignty of kings, right? That the kings were just this complete – they were all tyrants and they they ruled over us and they had absolute authority. Right. So if if King so it sounds like Saint King Louis the Ninth is not that. That's right. So if he's going into a village, and there seems to be some level of like subsidiarity where he's understanding, you know, he's not coming in and dictating; he's coming in and understanding what's going on there. What what actually governs him? Like what dictates his authority? How does he act? What's his relationship to that village? Like where where do we find that structure? Right. So the, where I, there's two pieces to that. Where I want to begin is is with your your description of the way we tend to think of monarchies and the reason why we think of them that way, what what you're describing is absolutism, um, which is a a form of monarchy that develops in the 17th century, beginning, I suppose, in the 16th century, but really in the 17th century and then into the 18th century and then culminates in the revolutions, right? The French Revolution, the American Revolution, the revolutions of the 19th century to overthrow these absolute monarchs. But the point is that that's a modern phenomenon, not a medieval one. So when we that's actually the 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 period of of monar- monarchical absolutism is the period in which the state as an entity is being built so they build the state and then the state eventually turns against them to get rid of the arbitrary will of this monarch and replace it with with the will of um well, what amounts to a bureaucracy or an administrative regime <laughs> okay so so it's not necessarily that it's that modernity is wrong in viewing that as tyranny. I think that modernity is right. I think the Enlightenment thinkers were 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 right that the absolutists were tyrants. Hmm. What's wrong is thinking that that's what monarchy is. That's just a particular historical form and a very late one of monarchy, and and it, it is is in fact a. Um, a, a, a I think it's a questionably Christian form. I think it's probably the beginnings of 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 dechristianization of Europe is when they start building those sovereign monarchies. So, um, so that, that's, that's that part. Now the, um, right now. So what's the second part? So, how, so, so you made a good I distinction forgot. there between his absolute power. So then help me then understand if I, if I have this myth in my mind of mm-hmm. these absolute Kings, right. Who just right. Constantly put people in towers and have people killed. For right, right, right. So then what then governs the oh. saintly King? Right, Where, right, right. right. So, so on? this is, this is really interesting, right? So, the the problem the problem you're discussing of like who watches the watchers who governs the governor is a problem in an absolutist system, but it's not in the the actual medieval form because what's actually happening in the medieval form is that I'll try to describe I'm going to describe this theoretically in the way Saint Thomas Aquinas does, which is very appropriate because he's in Paris during the reign of Louis the Ninth. Okay, okay, this is during his career, so he's his writing is describing this world that Louis's reigning over. That human law, so the, the, the way in which human beings structure their lives and live as a social political thing, human law, is a determination or a specification of the natural law. So, so there's, if it's just, so assume justice here. So the natural law is sort of generic, honor your mother and father. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do you honor your mother and father? You get them roses on Mother's Day. You greet them in the morning a certain way you but the, the specifics are the way in which human beings <clears throat> actually live the generic law 
but they need the specific law in order to live out the generic law. How would you honor your mother and father other than by doing it in a certain way, right? Right. Okay, so what, what a society of justice, so assuming a society that's moving into justice, part of the freedom of that society is that the communities of of just and free people are capable of specifying that law that they're all keeping together in different forms. Okay, so you can have diversity within the specification of the single law, the natural law. Now, the reason why that's really important for your question is because the king comes in, he also has a vocation within this regime of justice, which is a specification of the natural law. And because they're all... They're all sort of living within the law that none of them control. He's capable, the king is capable of being judged as just or unjust by other people within the kingdom. All right, so they themselves are legislators within their own realms, their own vocations. So they have to be very careful about judging um, higher authorities. But when higher authorities in, in this sort of a system, you mentioned subsidiarity, behave in an unjust way, that, uh, that lack of justice is felt by the rest of the community almost in an intuitive way. So, so for example, uh, an example might be, um, uh, you know, your children can't, can't judge your performance as a father because they're beneath you. They don't understand fatherhood. Mm-hmm. But when you behave childishly, like if, you behave, if a father behaves like a child, all of a sudden the child is in a position to be mad at you and like, and like just justly mad at you. Right. right? And they even perceive that you're behaving in a childish way. I mean, they perceive that you're behaving in a way that's now sort of at their level instead of where you ought to be, which is above them. And so that's sort of the dynamic of this sort of a, this sort of a system. So if an authority behaves in an unjust way, which is a way of sort of lowering themselves into a realm where they don't belong, intervening, someplace where they ought to let the authorities that are in that place exist and, and, and function on their own. Those lower authorities are in a position, if they're just, to call them to account for that, right? Um, and so you have the point, the point I'm trying to get at is that because the law is, is, not, is sort of, the, the way to ultimately describe the law is the way of life of the people, right? Rather than as statute, um, because of that, the monarch has to move within that, and he can't control it on his own. So, so in a sense, who's the check? Everybody is, right? Okay. Who's, who's the check on the monarch? Well, the whole, the whole world is the check on the monarch, the social world as a whole. The other aspect of this, which is perhaps more practical, is that he doesn't have any sort of centralized administration, right? He has a handful, you know, maybe 100 officials or something like that for the whole kingdom. So the only way to actually initiate any sort of large-scale action is through the obedience of people. And obedience is freely given, right? So, so you, have, you have a dynamic of authority and obedience. The king is an authority, but the, the power then that comes out of that authority is, is, is dependent upon the obedience of those who are under his authority. So he says, come to the muster. We need to get an army together, and they either show up or they don't. But he has no recourse if they don't show up. It's not like he goes, well, I'm going to send the army to get you. <clears throat> it's like, no, they, <laughs> they are the army. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, we're over. Right? Yeah. So let me see if I can contextualize this just a little bit. Because I think we've got a lot of things. We have many things going on, right? We've got mm-hmm. understanding the, the actual history of this, which I think a lot of people are, are unfamiliar with. Right. right? 
But then also I think that the, one of the things here is that there's a very rich Catholic political thought that most of us are completely unfamiliar. That's right, yeah. So yeah. you mentioned – so let me see if I can rearticulate this. So obviously one, one, of the, one of the kind of treasuries of that thought is St. Thomas Aquinas' Treatise on Law. Right. And so one of the things that we kind of flirt with today to a certain degree, uh, but what Aquinas is very clear about is that you, know, you have natural law. Mm-hmm. Right, in which all human beings, um, you know, have this natural law engraved in them. Right, it's the it's their participation in the eternal law of God. God right. moves all things towards their end. Uh, men and women are rational creatures. We mm-hmm. can reflect upon this. Like, and, the, and you're right; these translate into broad moral precepts, mm-hmm. like the Ten Commandments. Right, don't murder. Yeah, okay. the church's tradition has always been that the Ten Commandments are a sort of summary of of that, the natural moral law. Correct. Right. So we all have this natural moral law. Uh, inscribed upon us, uh, and this is why we kind of see it being ubiquitous in all kinds of different cultures, mm-hmm. etc. But then from that, this is the, I think the key point here in Catholic thought is that then that is the source, that's the well from which all human law has to come. That's right. And so, you know, you gave the example of honor your parents. When I teach in RCA, I often give the example of, of do not murder. Mm-hmm. Okay, do, is that good? Yeah, we all agree on that principle, right? That broad moral precept. But then we have decided as a culture, that due to justice, we really need to parse this out, right? Because first-degree murder, felony murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, these are all things that are specified from that broad moral precept, Yeah. right? Because we've realized justice dictates that things are different, intents are different. So if I understand you correctly, then... Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but... It, it, those are all those are all good like just specifications of the of uh, uh, of uh, the commandment against murder, but the other thing to point to point out is because of sin, we also like allow abortion. Correct. Um, the Nazis had a, a law against murder. It was against a lot of murder in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and they had Auschwitz. Correct. So in in our fallen state, we specify the natural law poorly. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is where I think. No, I, yeah, certainly. Uh, we could, I mean, we could spend all day talking about how um, in modernity we do this all the time because we're not even cognizant of that's the source of our law. Right. Right. So we, we, we dictate it, we predicate it upon um, if enough people vote, mm-hmm. this thing is just. Right. Right. And so yeah, then we get um, you know, some of the terrors that we have to deal with today, like abortion and euthanasia and these types of things. It's an important point though, because, because sometimes I think when you talk about the natural law, we can get confused into thinking that it's just sort of obvious and everyone knows it. And, oh, we all, we all have access to the natural law. So we all know what's right and wrong. And it's like, well, yeah, sort of, like I said, the, the Nazis thought murder was wrong. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, can have that, you can have that malformed conscience, right? Right. It can be the, and it's, that's why a lot of us talk a lot about culture because actually as, as children are raised, as we're in this culture, the culture, right, a cult, it instructs. Right. And it right, can right. actually, That's right. Aquinas will talk about that it can actually impede our ability uh, to even reflect rationally what is in our nature. Mm-hmm. So no, so um, without deviating into critiquing modernity all day, yeah, you know, which yeah. would be a phenomenal conversation. Yeah. But the point here is that what you're saying is, is that, listen, the, the peasant, the baron, the count, King Louis, they're all adherent to the same understanding of natural law. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's these external understandings of this that keeps them in check. Right. And then if the king deviates from this, then those that are under him, because they all adhere to the same thing, it's not just his will, his law. 
he's adhering to a law, then there's some kind of checks and balances there. There's a, there's a, because of, because the law, like you said, they're all, another way of putting it would would be maybe something like they're all working towards the same end, right? The common good. And so because of that, the unity is a unity within what we would think of as a sort of um, decentralized form. All right. So, so, Different authorities have different levels of power and control different resources, but they're all working towards the same end. So when they're all working towards the same end, there's a a coherence and a sort of a a unity to that, right? It's moving together. But if somebody steps out, if somebody becomes unjust, breaks the law, then they don't control the power structures. They only control the power structures that they control, right? So around them, there are, like you said, there's the barons and the bishops and the peasants and the commun- the communes, the free cities, and the and all of them have their own ability to exert power, which means that there's a, even in a negative sense, there's checks, right? Like, like military checks, right? So if one, if one, or police checks or however we want to put it, right? So there's no, one of the, one of the, one of the characteristics of the modern form of politics is a monopolization on coercion, Right, so all legitimate coercion is is sucked to the center, but that's not the way the medieval society is structured, right? So, like a, like I said, you have to to call the army together. You call it together from out from all over the place. But the 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 military might or the police force is distributed out through the kingdom, so there isn't even the ability to be a tyrant in in that sort of modern sense. Right? They don't have a structural ability. Right. You see? Yeah, because like <laughs> kind of a, a clarification by contrast, right? So like today. Uh, our our president is also the head of the military, and if right. he dictates the military to do something, the whole military moves on. It's not a federation of different powers that actually has to understand. Well, wait, is what the president asks us to do us just? Yeah, and we and and we actually, I think that's a great example because it shows how the medieval conception is based upon an accurate anthropology. Because even in our system, which theoretically has this monopolization on violence, this, this like you said, the, the president is the commander-in-chief, our military set, it doesn't have to obey an unlawful command. But the, the irony in that, like, well, how do they determine if it's lawful or not? Correct. Right? Where are they? Like, we, we know deep down that the system we've built can't be a self-referential closed system. Right, like we like it, that, we know it has to be reaching outside of itself. But, but the system itself doesn't doesn't account for that, right? Like it doesn't. It's not based upon that reaching outside of itself. That's like some exception that we back into if something really bad is happening. Right. Right. Like the officers don't obey their their orders. Right. So this, <laughs> right. So this, this, what do we call this? This regime that we're, you're kind of describing of these this this kind of. Um, I don't, want to, I don't want to say a balancing of powers because there's still a hierarchy, mm-hmm. but there's I, I hesitate to say even checks and balances because we use that term and uh, we use it in a different way. Right. But what's our descriptive term for this? Is this feudalism? Is this what? What is this as like a, a regime? It's. It, I mean, I refer to it as a sacramental kingdom, and we can discuss maybe why it's sacramental. Because we haven't actually but got to this. The church side, part. yeah, the church yeah, side. because it, but it is. Um, I, I also use I also use the term a subsidiarity society based on subsidiarity. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to use feudal only because feudal has connotations of early medieval, especially among historians, early medieval periods of um, chaos, right. violence. Yeah, that's what modernity saved us from. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there is, in fact, a period that historians will refer to as the feudal period, which is after the fall of the Carolingian Empire and before the rise of high medieval civilization. There's a couple hundred years where things are fairly nasty. Okay. Okay, so. (laughs) Kind of by way of introduction, in your introduction to your text before Church and State, you talk about two swords, Mm -hmm. right? Because you, you open up church and state with a question mark, right? right. And so yeah. you talk about this history of Catholic political thought with two swords. What is that? That's That gets to the very heart of this, because the way I describe this society, there may be our people out there who are going, well, yeah, but that sounds like a pipe dream. People never actually behave justly, and we have to have control, because if you have this decentralized system, what you're actually going to get is crime, and you're going to get mafias and what, all this kind of stuff. And <clears throat> there's some truth to that, right? Because we're fallen. So the two swords is is based upon that. I think the two swords is based upon that realization. Okay, so so here's what it is. You have the temporal sword, which is the power of the laity. We'll say. So both swords are within the church, and this is the way political treatises or begin in the Middle Ages. Within the church, there are two swords: the temporal and the spiritual. All right, so there's not so right from the beginning we have to make sure we're not talking about church and state in the modern sense. These are both within the church. So the temporal sword is the the sword wielded by the laity, say. And we're gonna talk the sword part of it is a sort of violent part. Okay, so what happens when so so um, sorry, I gotta get my bearings here to think about. So this whole society that we're talking about is a society that's pursuing the the ultimate end of man, so pursuing salvation. But what the pursuit of salvation is, is a movement from the imperfect to the perfect. It's a movement, ultimately, the way Thomas would describe it, is into virtue, into human perfection. And and just to make sure we highlight this, you're not just talking about the church is moving towards the... The whole society, yeah. The, I don't want to say church and state, what do I say? The two swords are moving, like, the entire uh, body of humans here together are all moving towards the final thing. That's right. So that's the that is the end of humanity, right? Is communion right. with God. And there's no aspect of humanity that falls out of that. There's no economic sphere that falls out of that. There's no political sphere, there's no private sphere that falls out of that. There's no entertainment sphere whatever. I mean like like we are as human beings in our totality, our end is communion with God. And so the whole social organism, the whole social entity is moving towards that. But what we all so there's a dynamism to it is the point. This isn't a static understanding. It's a static. It's an understanding of movement, and that movement is from the imperfect to the perfect, from a boy to a man. Is the way they'll describe it. Uh, the metaphor they'll use a lot. But what that means then, and as we know, human beings are fallen. So we have vices. We commit sins. We we you know we make error, and then but the movement into our perfection is the movement out of that into virtue and close ever closer perfection to perfection. All right. <clears throat> All of this is to say, in order for that to work, you have to have two powers. We sometimes will think of them as um, law and grace would be another way. Okay, so you have you have the law, which instructs, and in a in a world without sin, it would still instruct, it would still inform as to what to do. But in a world that includes sin, it now it now must bear within it discipline. Correct. And I think, right. And just to illuminate something here, the. Because I think there's a distinction in how we, when we view law as moderns, it's usually just something you're prohibited from doing. That's right. right? That's the liberal conception, right? Right. right. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If we're going to talk about law in this traditional Catholic sense, with you know Saint Louis the Ninth or Thomas Aquinas, 
the law is a teacher. That's right. The law is a teacher of of virtue, of moving you to your final. That's life. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So so law, the way Thomas describes it in the preface to the treatise on law is that law instructs us towards the good. So he says, all external human principles for human action, external principles for human action come from God who instructs us with his law and assists us with his grace. So the two external principles that perfect human beings, so they sort of come from without, are law and grace, which affect the intellect and the will. Right? Law instructs, grace assists. And that instruction, because of, our, because of the condition of original sin, which is a sort of um, deformed nature, right? So virtue perfects nature and creates a sort of, the way they'll describe it as a sort of second nature, right? The virtuous man behaves in himself in a different way than the vicious man does, right? Without, like, as if it's a second nature. So the, the disciplinary and an ultimately coercive component of law becomes essential to the pedagogical nature of law, right? So we know this from raising our children, right? That, that you, you instruct your children a great deal and you're not using coercion all the time. Right. But every once in a while, you must. Okay, can, we, yeah. <laughs> can we have a working definition of coercion? Well, I mean, the most obvious would be physical, physical contact, one body pushing up against another, right? But just some, dragging someone out of a room or hitting them on the head or something. But there's also um, threats are similar, right? So you start approaching coercion as you start threatening people with rewards and punishments. And it, it, yeah, and a very simple, maybe overly simplistic, is just simply that there has to be some, if you're going to promulgate a law, mm-hmm. there has to be some authority to actually enforce Law, right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the authority. This is. This is. A, there's a terminological problem here because the the authority. I think technically speaking, the the authority that is behind a law is coupled with the obedience of those who obey the law. So when when people obey the law as human beings, so freely, that renders the lawgiver an authority. Right. I think if they disobey the law, so they're resisting the law. He really becomes a power. Right? So he's not an authority to them. That's the reason why they're disobeying the law. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So <clears throat> and I think that's the way Thomas uses those words. And we, we've sort of lost that where we just authority and power, we kind of, we kind of uh, just collapse into each other. But I, I think in at least the Thomistic system, there's a, it's worth keeping those separate. That's very true. So we've got this temporal sword. Mm-hmm. That's the, and that is the... Um, coercive. The coercive. Let's see. Now I want to say state. Now I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say state. Well, no. I, I mean, it, it, you're not. But the temporal sword. What we're talking about here is the 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 polis. This is the political body, right? It, it's one aspect of it. So if you imagined a society without sin, mm-hmm. so say say we hadn't fallen, um, or before the fall, if there's a society there would still have been temporal order. There would still have been law, but there wouldn't have been the sword. Because we are by nature... Social. Yeah, we're social. We are by nature, the natural law has to be specified in order for us to live it together. And hierarchy is also natural. Hierarchy is, that's, that's part of the specification of it, right? So like we're a complex social being that has to be coordinated in our actions to pursue our common end, our common good. And so because the natural law can be specified in any number of ways... Decisions have to be made about how it how it's going to be specified for us, and so you're it's, you're necessarily ordered, and you're necessarily hierarchically ordered. So so politics doesn't is not the result of the fall. Politics is intrinsic to human nature, even in its perfection. So you've got the temporal sword. 
So then what is, what's the spiritual sword? Right. So the, the, let's, let's set the sword aside and just talk about the power because um, we'll talk about the sword. The sword is a particular aspect of the power. But the spiritual power is grace. So, so this society that we're talking about sounds, sounds like a fairy tale unless you believe um, in Christianity. <laughs> okay, so, so if Christianity is real, then the pursuit of improvement, the pursuit of virtue is not futile. It, it actually occurs, right? We actually are capable of, of, of doing it. But the only way we're capable of, of moving closer, further into holiness is through the reception of grace, Right, so the reception of truth and grace, the preaching and uh, so the preaching of the gospel and the administering of the sacraments, so the clergy, right? So the the this this is, this is what makes it ultimately a sacramental kingdom is that the very political theory of the kingdom depends upon the action of the clergy along with the action of the laity. So the laity are structural structuring, we can say, the sort of um, physical external realm. Right of people and things and property, and then that also includes coercion where it's necessary. And the clergy are the are instructing in the truth of God's law, the truth of the natural law, the truth of the moral law, while also um, providing the the conduit of grace that makes the living of that law possible. So the only reason why societies or the villages, the communities throughout the kingdom are capable of having their own way of living the peace is because they are themselves living the Christian life, right? They've been restored um, through law, proper law and grace to the vocation, the human vocation. And part of that vocation is the specification of God's law for ourselves, right? We legislate for ourselves. And Thomas talks about this as part of the freedom of the new law. Right, it's not only so. How how is the new law? So the old law, the new law. How the new law, the gospel. How is it that it's a law of freedom? Where there's two ways. Thomas says he says one is that um, it has uh, because we because we can um, internalize the law right through grace. We become free from it as an extrinsic principle. So I'm not murdering not because it's against the law. I'm not murdering because I'm the kind of person who doesn't want to murder anymore because I've moved closer into my perfection. So I become free from the law by internalizing it. That's one way. But the other way that it's a law of freedom is it actually restores the legislative function to man, right? So after the fall, we, in our corruption, we had, we had lost the ability to accurately and, and, and fruitfully um, order ourselves towards our perfection, right? Instead, we ordered ourselves towards our damnation. Right? And this is the reason why salvation history, the interventions of God in the Old Testament and salvation history occur the way they occur. But in the new law, that's restored to us through grace. But that means that great, in order to have a society that is not structured through a, an extrinsic, ubiquitous sort of law code, but to have a society that's really structured through the living of peace requires that the population is in fact moving into virtue through law and grace. So... This is where the, 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 the political side, so the sort of theory of politics that Louis IX is living and enacting, requires the, the, the spiritual side. So the temporal side and the spiritual side are wedded together fundamentally. They're, they're two powers that are uh, ordered towards one end, and that the society that exists requires the action of both of those powers in concert in order for it to exist. Yeah, so let me, let me see if I can sketch this and tell me if I'm correct. So we have, 
because man has a natural end yeah too right so he has a, sure. he has a natural end uh and then he also has a supernatural end so on our natural end right we're we're, ori- we're still oriented towards god as mm-hmm. we can know him according uh, to reason and happiness is the attainment of a good so therefore if i can actually attain this final good right i i am happy i'm truly happy then you also have though the spiritual side in which now we can actually have grace and participate in the divine life itself, right? It's something supernatural. It lifts us up to what we otherwise could not achieve on our own, right? And then what I hear you saying, though, is that in this, in, say, St. Louis' kingdom, these two are really operating as one body. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, and I think, one of the, and correct me if I'm wrong or help me understand, before church and state, one of the reasons that this distinction starts to kind of collapse, as we understand as a modern, is because all the laity are also part of the church. That's right, yeah. And so it's the church then, uh, even though nature and the supernatural remain distinct, there are two swords, right? They're not collapsed into into one. They all, they're all operating as this body of Christ, mm-hmm. right? And even, because um, I believe even sometimes the, the incarnation itself is looked at as an analog for man's political life. That's right, yes. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah, so that the, 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 that Christ has both a human nature and a divine nature, but in one person. So, you know, one, one living being. Mm-hmm. And the society operates in a similar way, right? So the natural and the supernatural are not stacked on top of each other, where they each have their sort of distinct realm. Like, here's the natural realm, and we can achieve all these sort of natural ends. And, and then once we've gotten that under order, under control, then we can t- step up to the next level and do the supernatural stuff. Right, that's not the way the way to understand it. It's actually that the natural is elevated into the supernatural where it achieves its perfection. Right, so there's no there's no aspect of the natural that is not being elevated into the supernatural. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, grace so will, grace will always perfect nature. Yes, right? it perf- like, it perfects like faith, nature though. It doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't it um, doesn't. It doesn't destroy nature, or it doesn't it doesn't add on to it in a sort of ex, you know in a way that we can sort of sort them, right? It perfects it. It makes it more perfectly natural. <laughs> yeah, grace so has this twofold act that sometimes we forget about. Is one, it's not just simply that it comes in and perfects our nature, but then grace also heals. Our well, nature. and that's what I was going to bring up next is because something that's often forgotten, um, tragically, is that nature is wounded. Correct. So. It's not as if we can talk about, oh, the, po- the political realm is the natural realm, and then we have the ecclesial realm or the supernatural realm. Well, the natural realm doesn't exist anymore, right? It's been wounded. It's not natural. It's now, it's now a, a wounded nature. It's now unnatural in, its, in, its, in, in the way it's acting. I mean, a way, would be, the way, a way thinking of it, of it might be that the first sort of action of grace and revelation is to just restore nature to itself. <laughs> right. right? It yeah, it has to heal and then be elevated, the healing and the elevation. Which is one of the reasons sometimes you'll see the saints talk about that to come to know Christ, um, you know, to, to experience him is actually to be most human. That's right. To actually be, and also to be most yourself. Yes, that's right. Like right, you, you right, right. enter into understanding more of humanity by coming to understand Christ. That's right, yeah. That's the, that's the perfecting aspect of it. But the idea for for this discussion that's really important is that it's not even possible to have a natural regime without the spiritual power. We require grace to live the natural law. 
And this is if to think otherwise. I mean, to live it accurately. Yeah, to live it accurately, right? Because you right. see people like, um, <clears throat> say, to take like Plato or, or Aristotle. I'm thinking particularly of Aristotle or Cicero, even right. Right. By reason and reason alone, even with a wounded nature, uh, articulated um, in many great ways the moral precepts of natural. Law. Sure, because we're not we're not totally depraved. Right. So it hasn't so it hasn't co- completely because we need to make some distinctions here, right? Because we also have the Reformed tradition, right? Which yeah, is, right, right. Says our nature is completely gone, right? Man mm-hmm. wills evil and evil only. That's right. What the Catholic tradition is telling us is that no, you still have this rational nature, you still have this political nature, but it's been wounded. But that wound is a key, right? It's not I, I, in Catholic discussions. There, there's there's people who want to emphasize the the integrity of nature. There's people who want to emphasize the wounding of nature, and we kind of sometimes squabble, right? But we both agree that. It is still integral and it is wounded. <laughs> okay, right. the degrees or the implications of that is a, is a point of theological uh, dispute. Mm-hmm. But the wounding of nature, I think we we've got to remember that that is the basis of sin, right? Like the reason why sin is sin is because we know better at some lo- because we're not totally depraved, <laughs> right? The reason why, the, like the nature of human evil is exactly that the natural law is not completely effaced. Right, we 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 know at some level, and we're certainly capable of knowing more, and so we have no excuse, as as Saint Paul would say. Right, we have no excuse for our behavior. Yeah, it's the beginning of Romans. Right, that exactly. Look at the world around you, and you you can you can deduce from that that there is a God, that there's a moral order. And right. So despite suffering that defect, we're still actually culpable for it. Which is then what makes us culpable, right? right. Is the fact that we know better, or we ought to. But the point would be that. The, the second part of that is essential, that we, we, in fact, misbehave. We, in fact, get it wrong, even though we shouldn't. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, so so, so the, the, uh, this is, I think, Augustine's primary, primary point, is that the tranquility of order, human beings' integration into the natural order of things, can't be escaped, right? And we feel that ordering. So he uses the example of, like, a man that's hanging upside down, and... The, 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 the pain that he feels, so he's out of order. The man's upside down. It's not the way a human being is supposed to be. He's hanging from his feet. But the pain he feels, the suffering he's feeling, is because in his nature he's still properly ordered. Right? It hurts him because of his intrinsic order to the order of the cosmos. That's the reason why hanging upside down by your feet is uncomfortable. So there right? Be, yeah. <laughs> so there seems to be a, a, a thesis here that's developing. I want to make sure I understand it. Um, clearly, which is, okay, we have now this, you know, you've articulated there's there's these two powers, these two swords, and all of a sudden we realize that the laity are not uh, something separate and distinct from the church, but they're actually in the church. Right, right? yeah. And so all the people who are uh, leading the, the political body are also members of the church. Mm-hmm. And you, it's interesting because you, you, then you, sta- you stated like, okay, well, can you actually operate a natural regime apart from grace because you're wounded, that nature's wounded. And that's that's a f- uh, fascinating claim because to say, hey, if you're going to try and run uh, a government, a regime, right, and it's not a sacramental kingdom, it's not actually perfected by grace, it's not like you just simply are trying to operate it bereft of Catholic teaching or grace mm-hmm. itself. You're actually wounded in trying to operate a body politic with a wounded nature. That's right, yeah. And so you're, 
what you're seeing then and what you're kind of presenting to us is that you need grace to run politics correctly. But then our almost entire political modern bent is to separate religion and politics. That's right, yeah. That's why it so fails. Doing, it, seems like, <laughs> it seems like we're doing the complete opposite. Of That's right, yeah. Doing. yeah. I want to parse this out just a little bit because <laughs> I want to I want to make sure, you know, this these are uh you know, these aren't cool ideas that Dr. Jones came up with, you know, no. week in his basement. So I want to parse out for people who might not be familiar with this tradition. Cause I think, um, and I think that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoy your text and I, I recommend it to people is we, we as moderns, we kind of, we can maybe get into a little bit of what particularly is it that actually shapes our imagination, but we have such a truncated political imagination, mm-hmm. right? And we can only really think within the modern terms because most people, and that's why your text is really good. Most people aren't questioning them. And so there's there are philosophical default, and so I think one of the reasons your text is so important is because it kind of radically shoves us into something that's completely antithetical mm-hmm. to what we're doing. In a certain ways, that can be um, kind of a palate cleanse of our political imagination, right? Oh, the think of politics in a radically different way. But for those of us who are Catholic, the way that our forefathers saw mm-hmm. politics, right? And so I, I want to just sketch this out a little bit so people understand where this came from. You know, my understanding that one of the first um, articulations of this is uh, St. Glacius. Sure, yeah, of right? course. Uh, in the 400s, late 400s, he writes a, a letter to the emperor mm-hmm. saying there are two powers, right? That letter is often known as duo sunt. Mm-hmm. There are two. Right. Right, and he articulates this. That's in, right. In that, so you see the pope and the emperor mm-hmm. dialoguing about how they can shepherd humanity to humanity's final end, right? God has has split this authority, if you will, this power, however you want. There's grace in nature. You have an emperor. You have a pope. We're going to move the human uh, body, right, as a collective to its happiness in God. Right. And we get, um, you know, another example, Unum Sanctum by Pope Boniface, right? right? In the 1300s, he talks about the two swords. Mm-hmm. Um, another one I've always enjoyed is Pope Innocent III. Uh, in the 1100s, because he talks about it as sun and moon. Yeah, that's right. right? The two, the two, and I, I really I appreciate because sometimes you want to move away from a sword analogy. Yeah, right? exactly. Because it's a power, not only a. I mean, it's a positive power, not only a negative one. Right. Right. And so there's this this beautiful where the church is this the sun, right, and it's guiding humanity and the political body, right. We always want to say state, but this this political body is the moon reflecting that light and it's by these two lights that man is governed to his final end. Yeah, and it's it's really beautiful because of course the if you think of the temporal power it, it governs the night. So that part those parts of our of our being that are still dark, right? The the place where we need law, where we need coercion, where we need discipline. That's the realm of the moon. Do you know? <laughs> yeah, like and, and, like and the day where we're already achieving holiness, where we're moving into it, you know, where we've, where we, we're living in the truth, is is that which the sun governs directly. It doesn't need the moon there, right? So, <laughs> so do you think that? So when we see that there's these two great powers, <coughs> excuse me, we've also kind of uh, had recourse to Saint Thomas Aquinas' treatise on law. Why is it like? Why did you pick Saint Louis the Ninth? Like, what what is it about this kingdom, particularly though, that that you said, oh, this is a good example of this? And what I and, and to kind of put a finer touch on it, is this just simply a good example of 
duo sunt, there are two. Look at how they played this out, and we can take these principles and apply them today or apply them in different regimes. Or is it like not only are they playing the right principles, but the actual regime they had, the actual practicalities is also an exemplar. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. Um, the reason why I, the reason why I, I went to Louis was um, because he was a saint, and and I was very interested in this. This it, it actually began with a very narrow interest, which was that that in in the middle of the century, there's a couple French popes who are um, who were uh, the servants of Louis the Ninth, and then they become popes. And he's interacting now with the Pope. So it was a very interesting situation where you have a saintly king and a Pope who spent his career serving that king. And so now the question is, well, is the king running the show? Is the Pope just obeying? The, you know, what, what's going on with these two guys? And so you start looking into that, and that's where the whole social order starts expanding out from there. That's where I began. That's why I started looking at it. But I think the real, the real meat of your question is, is in what way is this a model or something? Uh, I think it's, it's real strength or power is like you were saying earlier is exposing our minds to something different, opening our imagination, allowing us to see the deep principles of Christian politics and Christian social order. Because one of the principles of it that we have to, that makes it distinct from modernity is the conception that it can happen in any number of different ways, right? Because, the, the particular is a is a, always an analog of the universal, and and one of the things that that comes exactly out of this period is this idea of the analogy, which is that for every similarity between the human and the divine, there you must recognize an ever greater dissimilarity. But what that what that dissimilarity does is open up the realm of creativity or of, of human uh, particularness, right? So we can image God in an infinite number of ways because he's infinitely greater than us, right? So, but they can all be true images of God. So the point there would be, this is, this goes behind, this is what I think underwrites the church's assertion that there's no particular political form that the church is endorsing, right? There's no particular, like you must have a democracy with a Senate and a Congress and a, you must have that, you know, that, well, sure, monarchies can be good. So could democracy. So could republics. So, could, you know, that there's, yeah. there, it's conceivable within this analogy of being, it's conceivable that a just particular instantiation of the truth could be in any number of different ways. Yeah. So there's a, cause the you church, know? my understanding is that the church, you know, she's always taught that, you know, on one hand you have these political truths, right? How, mm-hmm. how can uh, both the temporal sword and the spiritual sword help mankind move um, to their final end and enjoy and enjoy that happiness in God. And there's and a lot of things, the two, the two lights, these kind of principles we were discussing. But then when it comes down to the actual regime, what type of government do we have? There's a legitimate plurality of things that we can Right, but that's not the same as saying any old one, any old regime. Right, so to say that there, and this Thomas talks about this quite a bit with, with in referencing human law, which is really what we're talking about—the way in which we structure ourselves—that to say that even to say that it's infinitely variable, so there's an infinite number of possibilities, is not to say that any old possibility is okay, right? Because that that variability operates within the confines of the just and the true. 
So you, you're always capable of falling outside of that. So to say that there's any number of political forms is not to say any old political form, right? So it may be the case, it may very well be the case that particular political forms are not compatible with a just society, right? Yeah, because there's a hierarchy, <laughs> right? Even when Aristotle talks about different types of right. regimes, mm-hmm. uh, and so as Aquinas, there's a hierarchy to them, right? Mm-hmm. And then there seems to also be distinctions between speculatively what would be the best versus practically, practically what works. The human culture and beings. And yeah, 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 because, yeah, right, because because we are a certain way. Yeah, because I think there's, right? <laughs> speaking, right, it's like, yeah, if we just had a just king, right, and he, he was virtuous and he could lead us into virtue, wonderful, right? Right. Monarchy would just be absolutely amazing. But it seems that when Aristotle, Cicero, even Aquinas, then when it comes to the practicalities, starts to talk about, well, maybe a mixed regime. Right, something, exactly. Something that adds in, you know, a little bit of an aristocracy, which is kind of a pejorative for us as moderns, right? Especially but, Americans, right? Exactly. <laughs> but that there's actually a, le- in its kind of more true sense, right, a leadership of uh, virtuous persons, mm-hmm. right, um, and that it's kind of a mixed regime. And so then there's this legitimate plurality, but as you say, has has boundaries on it. It's not just any regime we want, right? That can then be an incarnation of the political truths, which are really pulled from the truths of the human being himself. That's right. right? Yeah. Who, who right. are we? What are we made for? Mm-hmm. We're made to know, love, and serve God. Right. We're made to a- attain that uncreated good and be happy with him forever. That's right, yeah. And this is this is a political body that um, actually moves. But because we're, because we're human beings and we're not anything else, the world that we have now, so the fallen world the, with all of our problems, is not a totally depraved thing it's capable of being redeemed, right? Because it's us. (laughs) That's what the church is. It's what redeems us. And so, you know, the form that the the society took in the 13th century, I think is the form that the redeeming of mankind or the, because I think they achieved a certain level of holiness, the form that that took coming out of the feudal chaos of the earlier period. So when that feudal chaotic regime was redeemed, the form that just society took is the form of Louis's kingdom. But were we to convert, were we to, to move into our perfection, the historian would be able to look back and say, oh, look, it changed. Like, it's not like, oh, it's just the American regime only now Christian or something. Like, it right. would evolve. It would shift. It would change in the same sort of way that chaotic feudal regime becomes this, this decentered, decentralized subsidiarity regime of Louis's kingdom. But it would be recognizable as them right like as it would be recognizable as us and not it wouldn't be us just mimicking the 13th century you see what i'm saying no i do yeah let me <laughs> uh, we've got a little bit of time left so but i want to put you on the spot okay and see if you can help kind of um parse out for us to kind of untie something i think that's kind of haunting this this whole conversation is what happened why so we're sitting here talking about hey we've got popes in the 400s that are writing about how church politics works. We've got these beautiful kingdoms in the 1200s. Certainly they're not a utopia. Right, right no, yeah. But they are taking an authentic human anthropology seriously. Right. Right, that's what they're actually doing. Yep. And that's an anthropology that I, as a Catholic, say I agree with. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to our political imaginations, this seems to be the most alien, not even like foreign, but actually antagonistic, right? It's actually, this seems to be against the way that, our culture thinks about politics, even inside 
the Catholic circles. Right, right? I know. Uh, yeah, so what, mostly what, because we don't know any better. I think. But that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> and, that's, and that's what I think is so beautiful about your work in, in, in this conversation is is starting to expose our political imaginations that have been warped to the beauty of the Catholic political imagination itself. Right, mm-hmm. that we can mirror that. But what actually, in, in, I guess, like more of a, a summary, what happened to that imagination? Like, why do we think the way we do today? Well, pride. <laughs> so, so, so there's a there's a humility in the Catholic understanding, a profound humility. Everybody who's involved serves someone else, right? Even the king is serving the peace, is serving the people, serving the law. He's not the master of the law, and so it's tenuous, right? I mean, it 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 requires. It's always vulnerable to sin. It's always vulnerable to corruption, just the way we are in our spiritual lives, right? Like we have to just keep up our guard and we can fall. And, and, and I think society operates, history operates on a larger scale, but it's human history. And so what we experience in our spiritual lives, in our family lives of rises and falls, good periods, poor periods, that operates at different levels of scale historically. And so what I think, what I think happens is that, is that we pride begins to take over. We lose, there's a, there's sort of irony in that the, the, the pursuit of justice in the 13th century builds strong institutions, but strong institutions are then a temptation to man. Right. And so it, we, and we, we succumb to those temptations starting in the 14th century and then moving into the 15th century and the reformation. And, and then once that ball gets rolling, I think it's sort of like a downward spiral. Cause one thing you know? I think, people need to realize is that if you read Martin Luther, he's very familiar with this teaching. He's That's very right. Yes. With two swords. They're actively opposed to it. They know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. He, one of his, cause it was like, Oh, what's the reformation about? Oh, it's about indulgences. And that, that is, that is such a myopic view of what actually happened. And right. If you read Luther's um, articulation to the German princes about mm-hmm. why they should become Protestant. He's not using that language, but why they should, should join with follow him. him and join right. him. It's a political argument. Absolutely. And his argument is, in short, that, hey, there's no such thing as holy orders. Right. There's no sacrament of holy orders. There's no spiritual power. There's no, and therefore, there is no spiritual power. The world is the world of the temporal power. So, he even goes as far as say, hey, listen, everyone who's baptized is priest, bishop, and pope. Mm-hmm. So, hey, you little German princeling, you're just as much as the pope as the pope is. Right. So it's not that you have a temporal sword and he has a spiritual sword and we're all moving together. There is no spiritual sword. And all of a sudden we see this, the church uh, in religion, broadly speaking, becomes not uh, uh, the sun that's guiding the moon and guiding all of humanity, right? This higher power, uh, the pope with faith and morals helping these kings and princes move humanity towards their final end. But all of a sudden Christianity becomes subject to the state. To Completely the right. Power. That's right. Right. So one of the things, yes, so you've nailed it. I mean, so, so Protestantism, Lutheranism, Calvinism denies the spiritual power all the way to the point of denying the, the temporal efficacy of grace, right? So grace does not perfect us in this world, right? The, our, our salvation is a matter of, of, of imputation or our, our salvation is a matter of God reckoning us as if we were just, even though we're not. Whereas the Catholic understanding, of course, is that we are actually being justified, like we're actually being perfected. And that has huge political implications because 
that whole movement from the imperfect to the perfect, that whole, that, that the, the temporal and the spiritual are working together is that movement into virtue in the here and now in the world. If that's not occurring, then all you really have is the sword, right? Which is what Luther says is that the temporal power rules and he is a disciplinarian to keep people basically, I think at some point he actually says like eating each other. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he has an interesting <clears throat> right. So, so but the, 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 the sort of beauty of Lutheran system is that the prince is still going to be Christians, right? Like they, they don't have to give up their Christian legitimacy while they get total temporal independence from the spiritual power. And they get to submit, the, they, get to, they get to subordinate the church to them while still claiming this Christian legitimacy. That's a very, very tempting thing. And so a lot of people jump at it. It does. And, the, and the, yeah. <laughs> what's happening is that, you know, you get these... Um, so this is where you sometimes hear, oh, then we had a bunch of wars of religion. Right. Which I think that hopefully in the context that we've kind of articulated it, people realize that actually what's happening is is that you're starting to get these states that are consolidating power. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the most important ways for them to consolidate power in a centralized way is to subject religion to the state. That's right, and yeah. And not be subject to the Pope, not be subject to Rome, and therefore... Religion um, becomes a tool of the state, and then you just get this outbreak of violence because this kind of what we've just spent the last hour articulating this kind of beautiful structure of humanity becomes inverted, and we don't have the tranquility of order, we don't have peace, and we immediately break out into violence. Yes, right, yes. And even calling these, I think, wars of religion doesn't actually hit what is actually happening, right? Right, I mean, it's very misleading to us. because what's happened here, I mean, there's some, maybe it's somewhat accurate if, we, if, if what we're saying is these are the wars within which religion as a modern phenomenon is being created. I like that. No, I like that a lot. <laughs> okay, so, so it's, not, it's, it's that, it's that uh, the states are, use, are cre- turning Christianity into an ideology, right? So a way of homo- making a homogenous population that's devoted to its ruler, a way of disciplining the population, Right of ordering it towards the power of the center, and so the creation of national churches and it doesn't and I, and I hate to say it, but it, it applies to the Catholic states as, as much as to the as well, yeah, the Protestant. Even the Catholic state would <laughs> to do certain things. The the harmony of say what we knew Europe to be mm-hmm. is fractured. That's right. Yeah. So even if even if they're trying to hold on to what what we maybe could have called Christendom, mm-hmm. even if they're trying to hold on it into particular countries, it's it's not what it was before. Right. Yeah, that's right. So maybe a way of thinking of it, uh, thinking of it would be in the early stages, the fracturing of Christendom is the fracturing of Christendom into a bunch of little Christendoms. All right. With the Kings as sort of the Pope. Right. Right. And so you, it really is the case that you, you I think it's accurate to call them national churches and, and you get into a situation where, you know, people don't know this, I think, but 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, the Kings of Europe are appointing nearly all the bishops and controlling the local churches and, Right, which is which is the reason why there's no council, say, from the Council of Trent until Vatican I, because the Pope can't call a council because he doesn't control the bishops. <laughs> right, the bishops are controlled by the monarchies. Yeah, and I think so. What's <laughs> happening is because, I, and I think that if we were going to talk about today, like when a lot of people say, "Well, hey, um, there should be a relationship between church and state. They should work together. They should do something." Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of that time period. That's, right. That's, that's what right. Think of that's they what they're thinking of. That's the corruption. Yeah, they think like, oh, well, you know, during that time period, there's all these treaties 
of, okay, well, whatever religion is of the king or the prince is what the religion of the people is going to be. Right. right? So that religion becomes an extension of control um, exerted by the temporal sword and the spiritual swords is kind of... I mean, this becomes... So So we're getting into some really deep thing, stuff here and really, really interesting because even the modern critiques of religion... So, you know, think of Marx, Karl Marx, or, you know, the 19th century people who are Freud even, or, or, or Nietzsche, are the, their conception of what Christianity is, is exactly that form, right? So what they're seeing in the Enlightenment thinkers are the same way, is Christianity as a tool of statecraft, right? right. That's what, and that's what they're attacking then as being corrupt, as being hypocritical, as being an opiate of the masses, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever you, however you want to phrase it, right? Now, they're wrong for two reasons. They're not, they're not wrong completely, right? There's truth to what they're seeing in the, in the, about the corruption of this early modern period. What they're wrong is they're not seeing that Christianity is never, never becomes simply this corrupt thing, right? Like it never becomes simply a, a tool of the state. In fact, the, the, the population of Europe as a whole is covered with parishes, with priests and congregations who are receiving the sacraments and who are living, who are living more or less Christian lives, even if the sort of the structure itself is being corrupted towards power. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's so important <laughs> because I think that again, this kind of goes into our political imagination and understanding when when critiques are actually being leveled, are they being leveled against actually what church teaching was, or are they already being leveled against a fractured whole? That's right. That, yeah. That's basically surviving. You know, earlier we talked about regimes, speculative speaking, what we would do if things were perfect, and then practically, what do we have to do with reality in front of right. us? And some of these, you know, Catholic countries are trying to hold on to Christendom in the particular way, which basically just becomes nationalized. Right. Um, you know, and so there's one more pivot, which I realize is like a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> but I, I want to pivot because I think I, I just, I'm, I'm tempted here to just try and round out this narrative uh, as we kind of bring it to a close, which is, and I'll kind of give a, a rough sketch of it and, and feel free to critique it, is simply then, then you have all of these violence just breaks out. Right, you have violence everywhere, and so what ends up happening, at least, and some of this is according to their own mythos, is we get the rise of what we now call liberalism, of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We don't know what the final end of man is, right? We don't know how to do this. We don't know whether it's Catholic or Protestant, and we're killing each other constantly. So what we're going to do is we're going to table the final end of man, and we're all going to get together, and we're going to create a social contract. And you can pursue your final end. I can pursue my final end. We can all live together without having to do that. And so what ends up happening is, is that we table who is man, what, what is our final end. And you get what ends up rising to the top is, well, the most important thing is liberty, right? Mm -hmm. Just to allow everyone, okay, just, we're just going to have a social contract. We're going we're gonna to table all these things, and we're all going to live out our own. And you see this very clearly in thinkers like John Locke and then particularly the American uh, founding, right? Of like, okay, we're all going to come together. Here's some general principles we can live under. We'll create this social contract, and we're going to table. Religion then becomes uh, privatized. That's right. Like yeah. It yeah. Now it's a, now it's a very private deal, and you can kind of st start seeing uh, what's affected our imagination is then religion has no place in the political body, right? Yeah, that's all. right. Yeah, it's, it's completely incidental. Yeah, we're, yeah, we have a completely uh, secular in the more modern sense of the term, right? Social contract. 
But then what seems to have happened to us is that this liberalism, which then kind of breaks down, at least today, into left versus right, conservative versus liberal, Mm -hmm. so has dominated our minds that this is the only way we can think. Like if you if you get on any social media, you get on any media, mm-hmm. everything is either liberal or conservative. Right. It is right or left. Right. Which is actually all jargon that's contained within liberalism. It it, it shapes the way that we think. Yes. And I think that, and I, I appreciate your work. I appreciate uh, the work of of several others who have started to critique liberalism as a whole, um, and maybe to make some very clear distinctions. We talk about liberalism. We're not talking about the Democrats. That's right. right. Or at yeah. least not just the Democrats. Not just the right? Democrats. <laughs> in America, we call them the liberals. Right? Uh-huh. But there's also, I think what we have to realize is, is that you know, you could, one way to articulate it is that you know, in America, <coughs> our Democrats would be left liberals or progressive liberals. But our Republicans right, are mm-hmm. right liberals. Yeah, for the most part, that's right. Yeah. right. I mean, they are, even libertarianism is a, is a species of liberalism yes right right. that's actually the purest form of liberalism they see themselves as um you know being sort of outside the spectrum but they're actually very much in it right Right. i'm atomized i'm an individual we have a social contract leave me alone i'll leave you alone right this has so shaped our minds that we we just cannot think outside of this that's right yeah it's a problem and i think that's why (laughs) your book uh, before church and state is so phenomenal because even if the imagination tries right, to think outside of this, it's difficult. It's very difficult. And I think your work really helps push us to that. Because I think the danger that we're getting into, there's lots of dangers actually, but I think one of the things that um, you're seeing more and more people comment on is that what's happened to us is we all came together, you know, to simplify it in the social contract of like, okay, you, we don't know what the final end is. You go live out the way you think it is. I'll go live it out the way I, you can go be a good, you know, Catholic. I'll be a good, good Protestant. We'll figure out how to do this. Now it's shifted into there is no final end. It's a metaphysical claim. There is no final end of man. There is no truth but the truth that I pursue. And liberalism has habituated us to relativism. I mean, that metaphysical claim is there at the beginning. It's just hidden. That's true. Right? Because the very idea that you can construct a stable social order as if there was no end is the metaphysical, no proper end, is, right. is the assertion that there isn't one. Yeah. <laughs> because no. if there was one, it won't work. Yeah, and no, I agree. With right? To piggyback on your point, I would say that, yeah, liberalism habituating us to relativism is not because liberalism has gone wrong, but rather it's just played out. It's played out it's to, played to, out to become itself. Yeah, more. what was already nascent inside of it. Right, and right. We're seeing that in our culture now of, um, you know, well, this is the truth that I dictate for myself. And under our social contract, you have to honor this truth. You have to commit to it. You have to say, this is true. And if you don't do it, you're a pariah. Right? Yeah, you've that's bro- right. You, you've, broken, you've broken the social contract. That's, and and that's, actually, that's actually perhaps the least offensive of the current corruptions. Because I think, <laughs> I think at least there, there's some appeal to, to some concept of truth or justice or something, even if it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think where it gets really nasty is when the liberal anthropology is internalized. So I am seeking my own end. I'm self-interested. When that becomes internalized to the point where it becomes, well, why wouldn't I use the power of the state against you so that I can achieve my end? Right. Why wouldn't I use the power of mass marketing and propaganda to fool you into doing what I want? 
right? Like, why wouldn't I? On what? Where are we pulling the moral, the moral press, precept that I should let you pursue your end? Yeah, if, if if we're all self-interested and rational beings pursuing our individual ends, don't I just care about my own? <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, and I think that one of the things like earlier we talked about that the human law all has to come from that natural law, right? And right. it's just fair because we all share a human nature. Right. But today uh, we, don't, we don't believe there's a human nature anymore, right? We don't even believe that natural law is reduced to a religious concept. Yeah, so it and, becomes about power. And so the... Um, the only way then it's like, well, if our laws aren't pulling from nature, where are they pulled from? Well, they're they're pulled from a democratic process. So if enough people will this thing, our social contract shifts over to this. And if you don't agree with that, you you can just simply be left up behind, or you become that pariah. Yeah, you become you become. I mean, if to use language that Christian language, you become a heretic. Yeah, yeah, you become it, a heretic of the of the modern liberal right, state. Right. Yeah, and I think that. Yeah, so what's up and happening then, <coughs> excuse me, is that you can see that if there is no truth anymore, right? So this whole thing that you've articulated, everything is about what is true about a human person, and that human anthropology informs the way that the, the church and the political body, the two swords, are moving man towards their end. If there is no truth anymore, there's nothing for the intellect to actually grasp onto, and it just becomes about the will. That's right. Yeah. It's all about the will, Right. And I think that we're just getting into this thing where I think that you kind of trace it where you have liberalism, it habituates us to relativism. And once you start getting into relativism where there really is no truth and et cetera, once a culture starts kind of absorbing that, you just go into nihilism. You go straight to the will to power. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're, Nietzsche is the prophet <laughs> of our age. Right. <laughs> Other, even though we kind of live it in a hedonistic way um, and no one reads him, he, he dominates because there's nothing left but the will. And then you just get enough wills together. And you vote on something, and you can force others now to do that. Right. And so I think – and so I, I just wanted to kind of close that loop just simply because I think we have to realize how – at the beginning, right, it's, okay, the things in your book are very alien to the way that we think. But then if you actually start to reorient yourself, you realize that the way we live today in our political life, is actually very alien to the truth of who a human person is. Right, and what we realize is the reason why we feel uncomfortable in our world, the reason why <clears throat> it's bothering us, the reason why we're anxious about it, is because it's unnatural. Yeah. Right, like we, we are human beings. We're never going to actually become the entity that liberalism imagines us to be because that's a false anthropology. You're grading against the nature yes, of Yes, and so it hurts us. And if really, yeah. <laughs> no, it does. And I, I think that's, I think that's something for us to see is that this isn't just simply like Catholic truth and some kind of cafeteria of other truths that mm -hmm. are in dialogue. We, it is the truth, right? Mm -hmm. That we understand from the person, Jesus Christ. And so the more that we gravitate away from our human nature and from the truth of who, who a human person is, and the more that we deviate from natural laws, we create our human laws the more our political body is just absorbing chaos. Mm -hmm. and it, it's, it, more, long, it'll be more chaotic, more violent, more oppressive. And how I mean, long, tyranny. How long, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how long, how long that political body can continue to absorb chaos and remain sustainable is, is I think, a huge question. Absolutely. Right. right. But we have uh, people like yourself <laughs> helping to navigate these things. So as we kind of draw to a close, I, I want to give you uh, a chance to, we've talked a lot about before Church and State, mm -hmm. which again, um, 
you know, now I think I, at the end of our conversation, I would say one of the reasons I really love this text is because it is uh, a cleansing of, of the palate. It resets the imagination to see what, how did we act before liberalism? Because that, right. our whole imagination is truncated and left, right, conservative, liberal. This really helps, I think, push out and say, okay, what, give me some examples of how this would work. And I, I think it's a phenomenal uh, addition to the conversation. You also have a new book out mm-hmm. called The Two Cities, A History of Christian uh, Politics. So what's your, what's your short pitch for, for this work? That book is about how church history is human history, basically. Okay. So the, the history of humanity, which is normally told as a history of politics, right? Kings, wars, that sort of thing. That same history is told as the history of the church. So the, the political is, is, is an aspect of humanity, and the church is the redeeming of humanity, including the political. And so, and so the, history, the whole history can be retold um, with the church, not as one of the participants, but the church as the thing that's happening. Right, the reality, <laughs> the reality itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if someone just for kind of the listeners, so if if uh, so, we've got before church and state, we've got the two cities. Uh, so the two cities spans from creation, and we start with Adam and Eve, and end with um, today. Okay. So it's a whole. It's a it's a a very fast. If someone's kind of starting from zero, so they've listened today and they're right. like, okay, I did not know anything about duosunt, these two swords. Like I, I have no concept of this pre-liberal Catholic political imagination. Where do you, do you have any I think the two cities is the place to start. Okay. This is kind of a less because this was before Church and State was actually your PhD. It started out as a dissertation, then I spent a few more years on it and it turned into this. And so it's it's a it's a big thing, it's a big work, it's an academic, more academic work. And so this is maybe a little bit more more accessible. Okay. And and it and it and it it will explains liberalism, explains socialism, explains nationalism, explains the modern ideologies within the framework. So so you get which doesn't really happen in before church and state because it's about the 13th century. Right. Right. <laughs> and then, <laughs> excuse me. So then online, you are a founding member, correct? Of, yeah. Of one of the editors, right. Right. So new, new polity. Um, you guys have a podcast. Mm-hmm. You guys have essays online. That, uh, so if people are interested in kind of the dialogue we've had today, that's kind of the landing page for the, yes, a lot of these right. conversations. And then you actually have, uh, I find it's fascinating. You guys also have uh, courses. Right, right so yeah. someone can actually go online and, and, and pay and have this whole theological course that's filmed kind of in an artistic. Yeah, um, we've done we've done a, I've done a course on church history, which is a, kind of a course version of the two cities, okay. and then we have a course on gender and on about modern gender ideology, and it's like a biblical Christian understanding of what's going on there, which is great, and then one on modern science, the formation of science, and what's going on there. Wonderful. So those those are all available at New Polity. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, we've uh, really appreciated having you today and uh, phenomenal conversations. Thanks for uh, expanding our imagination and helping us understand the depths of the Catholic uh, political thought. We also thank you to David Niles and Adam Minahan of the Catholic Man Show for allowing us on today. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.